The story is told of a gentleman who was taking a stroll through Steglitz Park in Berlin, Germany. And on his stroll, he found a young girl bawling her eyes out because she had lost her favorite doll. They looked for the doll without success. The gentleman told her to meet him there again the next day and they would continue to look. The next day, when they still had not found the doll, the man gave the girl a letter written by the doll, which said, please do not cry. I have gone on a trip to see the world. I'm going to write you about all of my adventures. When they would meet, the man would read aloud his careful, the doll's <clears throat> carefully composed letters of adventures and conversations, and the girl found them enchanting. Finally, the man read her a letter that indicated that the doll was returning back to Berlin, and he gave her a doll that she had purchased that he had purchased. And she looked at the doll and she looked at him, and she said, this does not look like my doll. He handed her another letter that explained, my trips have changed me. The girl hugged the new doll and took it home with her. A year later, the man died. And many years later, the young woman looked at the doll and found tucked into the folds of the clothing on the doll a tiny note. In that note, from her friend at the park, she found these words, everything you love is likely to be lost. But in the end, love will return in a different way. Today, we're going to look at love. Love embraced and enjoyed, love apparently lost to time and distance, and love returned. In other words, we're going to look at the history, the mystery, and the mastery of love. So I'm going to invite you to keep those three perspectives in mind, the history, the mystery, and the mastery of love. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, we're here to look at some history and wonder at the mystery and stand in awe of your mastery. Inspire us here this morning once more from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin once again to reflect on Advent, the advent of a tiny baby that would change everything, I wanna invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter one. And we're gonna begin with the history. If you're in Luke chapter one, uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version here this morning, but whatever version you're reading from, we're going to start at Luke 1, and we're going to read 1 through 4, a little bit of the history of the book of Luke itself. Here we go. Inasmuch, oh, oh, Luke, inasmuch, isn't it great, great word to start with? Inasmuch, this is the deal, he says, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." 
Luke is writing this letter to his friend Theophilus. Now, I love a good handwritten letter. I save them for years. I keep the stamps, I hold on to the envelopes. There's nothing like getting a handwritten letter from a friend telling you things that they would never tell you in a phone conversation, right? The little details that'll pop up about what's going on in the world. Luke is not writing just a little, little thing about what's going on in his life. This is not an accounting of a recent holiday or vacation or what's going on at work. Luke is writing with a very specific purpose for Theophilus. He is not sending the Instagram of his day with a picture of lunch, okay? He is writing so that Theophilus will know that what he has learned about God has a basis in truth. Because having solid reasoning and evidence for what you believe matters. And Luke says, let's write this account so that you know that what you're reading and what you believe is true. So Luke had gathered eyewitness accounts and spoken to those who were continuing to teach of the events surrounding Jesus' life in order to help Theophilus understand. Now he begins at a radically different place in the life of Jesus than Matthew, Mark, or John. He doesn't start with genealogies, no birth stories. He doesn't start with theology. Luke makes a very daring choice. Luke begins with politics. Now, if we begin reading at verse 5, uh, here, we're going to go, we're going to go a whole one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. Ready? In the days of Herod, king of Judea. We're going to stop there for now. Now, I received a lovely meme this week, being Thanksgiving week. One of my friends sent me a text, and it had this in a picture form. It said, save money on Christmas presents this Thanksgiving. Talk about politics at dinner. <laughs> there were wise words on that meme. I appreciate it. Now, we live in a time of political contentiousness at best. On our national level, we are watching impeachment proceedings for our president. We are talking about interference in elections, corruption on massive scales, questionable deaths. Politicians belittle and demean one another daily. And that's just here in the US. If we look at the global scale, we find impasse and disaster there as well. Yemen. Humanitarian crisis, people starving to death. One in two Yemenites do not have enough food. Afghanistan, war. Syria, war. Nigeria, turbulent presidential elections. South Sudan, more presidential issues and rivalry there. Cameroon, massive protests based on government bias within the educational system. Ukraine, war. Venezuela, major economic crisis, fueled by horrific mismanagement. And if you listen to people speak, the anxiety, the fear, the concern is very real. Globally, people are upset. Now, we have a local here in town, I won't mention her name, but she likes to come visit us here at the church during the week. And she will rant about everything. Whether it's the development happening here next to our property, or our city council, 
or the way people drive, or the fire possibilities here on the Front Range, she can talk. And if you listen to her conversation, she is scared. And the truth is, a lot of people around here are scared. So when Luke writes, he writes into a situation that is very similar to ours, politically. In the era of Herod, king of Judea, there was an entirely different level of crazy. The politics and the alliances and the power plays were a little more brutal than what we experience here in the United States. But what made it more crazy was that it appeared that God was not going to reveal his presence to his people or with his people. God seems to have disappeared or at the very least, he has gone silent. In the time of Roman rule, Herod was extremely ambitious. He built fortresses and harbors. He even built the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which the Western Wall, if you go to visit Jerusalem, that was built under Herod's rule. He was Jewish by practice, but he had little regard for the Jewish culture if it conflicted with what he wanted or what he was interested in. Herod replaced some of the priests there at the temple in Jerusalem with foreigners from Babylonia and Alexandria. He placed a giant golden eagle outside of the temple of God to indicate that Rome had power there. Herod banished his first wife and child and married a local girl hoping to gain favor with the locals as you do, right? But when he had his own family killed, that included his wife. He was pretty paranoid. He kept 2,000 bodyguards. It is said that it was better to be a pig in Herod's household, right? Jews don't eat pork, than it was to be his son. So Luke starts this story of an infleshed God in the middle of a political mess. Because Luke knows that God's specialty is being at work in the middle of human messes. In the middle of disaster, God is present. The king, Herod, was killing every opponent, tiny babies who he thought may one day try to take his throne. He was degrading the nation chosen by God to share the good news of a savior, of hope and wonder and restoration. And for 400 years, no news had arrived fresh from heaven. Luke knows that this is a dangerous, bleak, and dark time. And he also knows that the stage is set perfectly for God's light to shine. The light switch of heaven is about to be thrown. However, I don't want to just stick in Luke. Important time, but it's really important for us to grasp that the darkness and the hopelessness was so pervasive that we need to go back further. Because it wasn't just this that started the darkness or the hopelessness or the pervasive fear. So if you will, will you join me in Genesis chapter 3? Now, many of us know this story. 
Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been created by God, and they are living in a garden that is known as Eden, and they are tricked by the devil in snake form. We know the story, right? They're living in a garden, they eat some fruit, they get into trouble. They eat fruit from a tree that God has said not to, and he gives a curse to the snake and to man and woman. So read with me verses 14 and 15 of Genesis chapter 3. It's on page 3 of your Bibles in your pews if you need it. All right, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. God is speaking here and he says this to the snake. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you should go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Right? At the beginning of human history, when humans choose to disobey God and they follow the snake, the deceiver, God promises that there will be a child, a seed, who will come and who will crush the snake. The baby will defeat the deceiver. Now, I do believe that God is a mathematician because here he does some pretty wild subtraction and addition, right? Have good and evil gets added and you have chaos. But take away evil and what remains? Good. Good is the only thing that will remain. And God promises that when evil is defeated, only good will remain. So Adam and Eve are forced to leave their home in verse 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 3. It reads as thus. Uh, It reads thus. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They're kicked out of home. The only place they've ever known, they are asked to leave. They are not allowed back in. They are banished. And it is in this new abode that Eve becomes pregnant. Genesis 4.1. And she says this amazing statement of faith when she looks at this tiny new baby that she has birthed. She says this. Kaniti ish et Yahweh. Yeah, I feel you, Eve. Isn't that beautiful? It's really beautiful. She says, I have gotten a man with or from the Lord. Now, sometimes the preposition here, right, et, is translated a little bit differently, but most commonly it's translated with the Lord. Meaning that she saw this baby as God's promised answer to the problem that she and Adam found themselves in, right? There's a huge issue, and he said there's going to be a solution. It's going to come in the form of progeny, and she thinks, here it is. This is the promise. This is it. This baby is the baby. This is the snake crusher. She thinks that's it. She thinks she gets to go home. She thinks that's the end of her pain and her suffering and the sadness and the brokenness. She thinks it's over. And who among us doesn't think the same thing? 
in the darkest night of our souls, we want out. We want the pain to end, the grief to disappear. We want to be in perfectly healthy and happy and safe places. Eve did what any one of us would do. She thinks that she knows that she has reached the end of humiliation and shame and separation. And she is wrong. History continues with many more glorious God-revealing moments and life-shattering events. And many events are predicted and come to pass. People come and go. Prophets come and go. And the promise of God to send a snake crusher remains. Abraham speaks to it. Moses speaks to it. Isaiah speaks to it. Jeremiah speaks to it. Ezekiel speaks to it. They all speak to the promise that God will send one who will change the world. And then the prophet Malachi comes along. And he again preaches of the restoration of God's people. And then nothing. Quiet. Four hundred years of silence. Four hundred years is a long time. I had to wait for four hours for lunch on Thursday. Mm. Four hundred years? No prophet had spoken. No angels had appeared. No ruler that was crushing the oppressor stood. Four hundred years of radio silence from heaven. The record of God given to man was examined and re-examined and nothing new was unearthed. And so humanity walked in the mystery. The promises of God seemed to be on hold. There was no indication of a timeline of when this little baby would arrive or when anyone would hear from God or see God again. Until a priest went to work. Read with me Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah was working, got up and went to his shift. His division of priests, the division of Abijah, um, this is the, the group, his co-workers, his colleagues that he would have worked with regularly, and they would have served in the temple from what we would know as mid-January to about mid-July. So kind of the first half of the year, they were in the temple and had all of the responsibility there, right? So let's keep reading here in Luke chapter 1, down to verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Zechariah is in the middle of a once-in-a-lifetime job opportunity. 
He, by the casting of lots, was chosen amongst all of his division of priests to enter the holy place where the showbread, where the candlestick, and where the altar of incense are, and to burn the incense. This is a big deal. This has not happened before in Zechariah's life, and this will not happen again in Zechariah's life. It was a rare occasion that the priest entered into the holy place, a once-in-a-lifetime. And while he's there, in this solemn activity, a divine messenger appears. Let's read verse 11 through 17. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him. I have seen a lot of scary things. I have never seen an angel. And Zechariah's response is perfectly appropriate. Right? Because angels are not just like fuzzy little cherubim or little chubby babies that we see in Renaissance paintings with halos on them. They are shining, massive beings that have just exited the throne room of God. They inspire fear. And so he has a legitimate reaction. I'm scared. Right? And the angel assures him, verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Zechariah is in the holy place, and he's asking on behalf of the nation, God, God, be with us. God, make yourself seen. God, move in this place. God, reassure us that we are yours. And the angel comes and says, you have been heard. Your prayer here in this space has been heard. And your wife will bear you a son, and you will call him John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah is praying and he's assured by an angel that his prayer has been heard. And oh yeah, your wife who cannot have children and you both of you are very old, you're going to have a baby. Now, it would be easy to assume that Zechariah is fervently praying for the baby. But the message from the angel doesn't indicate that, does it? He says, heaven has heard your prayer and a baby is coming. Now, Zechariah, I have a feeling, was not praying for a baby. He was old. Old people don't have babies. That time had gone. He and Elizabeth were settled into who they were. They were old, and they knew that their baby-bearing years were long behind them. He was praying for God to once again light up his people with hope in a dangerous and dark time. The prayer was a prayer to ask that the silence of heaven end. And that prayer was answered. And the sign that all the radiance of heaven was to be seen 
a baby was on its way. And it would be a baby born to two senior citizens. Now, this child wouldn't be just like any other child in the nation. He was named by God, right? You shall call his name John. He was anointed by the Spirit. He will be filled by the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's room. And he was coming in the power of the greatest prophet known in Israel. He will turn the heart, the, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit, of the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He was coming in the power of the greatest prophet that Israel had ever seen, but it was not Elijah reborn. This is not a rebirth of Elijah. This is one who carries the spirit and the power. After a deep quiet from heaven, God doesn't whisper the promise. He practically shouts it. The whole nation is gathered for prayer, and the priest walks out mute. Something has happened. Now, the last words that they had on record from God come from Malachi, right? And the last words of the book of Malachi say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a, with a decree for utter destruction. And here, with Zechariah in the temple, is the echo of those words given to a man of character and piety, who along with his wife are waiting expectantly for God to fulfill his promises. They are waiting for the darkness to end. They are waiting for the proof that their faith is based on truth. They are waiting for evidence that their lives can know that God is still God. So why does Gabriel promise that the baby to come, John, will come in the spirit and power of Elijah, right? There were amazing prophets. Why not Isaiah? Why not Moses? Why not Joseph, the son of Jacob? Why Elijah? At another apparently dark and relatively hopeless time in history, a man from a tiny town called Tishbe rocked up at the palace of King Ahab. And he had a message that it wasn't going to rain until he said so. He visited a widow in Zarephath and promised her in the middle of a famine that her flour and her oil wouldn't run out if she would feed him first. He challenged Ahab and his wife's Jezebel's priests to a whose God is bigger duel. Rain did indeed fall, but only at his request. And he got to hear God's voice while he was hiding from Jezebel in a cave. He warns Ahaziah, king of Judah, that his, of his upcoming death. Fire protects him from soldiers who are coming to get him. And he is miraculously translated to heaven. Elijah had a phenomenal prophetic career. But he came into one of the darkest periods in Israel's history when they thought they had been defeated and that the deceiver had won. And he came saying, no, 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 no. There is a God who is alive in Israel. And here Gabriel is telling Zechariah that the birth of John will bring a new era, era of such power to Israel. 
there will be no doubt that God is on the move. Because in the darkest time of human history, God reminds us that he is at work to redeem us and restore us. Without God's power, Elijah would have come and gone with no record. Without God's power, John would come and go without a record. But he has a purpose that is declared from before his birth that was announced to his father that he was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John would share the news that the long-promised snake crusher had arrived. And the world would never be the same. One of my favorite scenes ever in a movie comes from the movie Secretariat about the Triple Crown winner in 1973, the giant red horse called Secretariat. Yeah, so after a really bad horse, which, or horse race, after, which he should not have lost, right? He should have been able to win it, and he didn't. His caretaker, Eddie Sweet, figures out that he's got an abscess in his mouth, so he's not eating, and he's not running, and he's in pain. And he treats the horse, and the horse perks up, and Secretariat eats on a day that will determine the rest of the year for the, for the Triple Crown. And his caretaker looks inside his pin, sees the empty bucket of food, and he runs outside, and he's on this big race course, and it's foggy, and he yells, Hey, Kentucky! Big old red done ate his breakfast this morning, and y'all gonna see something that Jay never seen before. Right? This is that declaration in the Bible. Y'all gonna see something that Jay never seen before. It's a coming. The snake crusher is on his way. And how do you know it? Because there's a baby coming before him. History has taught us that God is constantly with his people. His present doesn't make our way easy or simple. History and our own experience teaches us that great evil is also present. The mystery of God tells us that even in the reality of evil, he keeps showing up because he is the master. His plan to bring the snake crusher has never stopped. And all along the course of human history, God keeps reminding us of his promise to make the world right. The mastery of this entire plan God has laid out comes in shimmering threads of evidence over a long course of history. A baby was promised, a baby came to Eve, but he was not the fulfillment of the promise. A baby was promised and a baby came to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and the Shunammite, but they were not the fulfillment of God's promise. So God announces in a time of great darkness and great need to a man of diligent patience and faith that another shimmering thread of evidence was to be born and he would illuminate the path for the fulfillment of the promise. As we honor the God who plans and fulfills his promises, we can rest simply in the knowledge that the plan has not been forgotten. The hope for humanity that was promised long ago, John is ushering in that promise. 
John prepared the way for the presence of God to live among us. Emmanuel, God with us. The writer Agnes Farrow says this, in response to the question of what is Christmas? It is tenderness for the past, courage for the present, hope for the future. It is a fervent wish that every cup may overflow with blessings rich and eternal and that every path may lead to peace. In other words, remembering the history, embracing the mystery, and dreaming of the mastery. This is Christmas. That history, that mystery, and that mastery are all evident in the announcement of John's birth. He is the flicker of light before the full blaze of glory. As Franz Kafka said, everything you love is very likely to be lost. But in the end, love will return in a different way. May God help us to know that his love was never lost. But instead, as planned out long ago, it has returned in a different way. Love has come to live with us. Emmanuel.